Welcome to the SaaS Marketing Superstars Podcast with your host, Aaron Sikowski. This is the show where we uncover proven growth strategies from CMOs and marketing leaders behind some of the fastest growing SaaS companies. Hey, superstars. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Aaron Zakowski, and today I'm chatting with Maura Asulin. Moore is a former two-time VP of sales, having scaled early-stage B2B SaaS startups from under 100000 to $15 million in ARR. He currently works with early-stage founders and startups as a consultant to build and improve their sales processes, playbooks, and people. He's also the, he, he's also building the number one sales coaching program for salespeople in B2B SaaS. Moore has been featured in Techstars, Endeavor, and Sales Hacker, and is the host of the Sales Talks podcast with over 2,000 downloads a month. How you doing, Moore? I'm good. Good introduction. I like it. I wrote it myself. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Great to have you on the podcast. Um, we've chatted a ton offline, and I'm super excited to have you finally on the show. Yeah, now it's official. We've all we, we official. Yeah. Um, so let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of the work you do. Um, yeah, I mean, you pretty much said it all in the, in, in the introduction, right? So um, you know, was uh, VP of Sales for early stage startups. Um, you know, they were. Uh, they would do less than 100k AR when I joined, so I was a, really the first employee, first sales hire. Um, became a VP of sales. That was like the whole my whole shtick, and then um, scaled them to 15 plus million AR. Hired salespeople, and I focused on like the three P's: uh, people, playbooks, and process. Um, that is like my whole you know thesis around consulting or advising startups. And then I'm also building a, um, call it the scalable version of my business, which is my coaching program for account executives. So it's one-on-one coaching, weekly group coaching. There's course material, a content, a community. And um, yeah, and I've been at it. It's officially been two years coming up in a month that I went on my own um, prior, you know, right after being a VP of sales. So That's awesome. So scaling a company in sales from 100,000 to 15 million ARR. You make it sound easy. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the, the, the three. The, I'm sure it's not right. The, 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 the three P's. So, so why don't you unpack that for a little and, and kind of tell us how, how does that process look like? Like, how do you accomplish a huge goal like that? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends what stage the company's at when you join in. Um, but typically, anything under a million AR, they aren't really doing. There, there is no official like sales process. It's usually founder led sales. To uh, usually, if it isn't, there's that's a mistake. Um, and then what I typically do, again, historically, if I were a VP of sales, I would go in and I would just take over all the sales for the company because I know how to do sales. And a lot of founders are more technical founders and they don't really know how to do it, what to look for. They have a lot of blind spots. So if I'm consulting a company and it's founder-led sales that's doing you know sub $1 million, mm-hmm. um, then I'm working with a founder to improve the way they actually sell. And then we start building a process, repeatable process around selling. So... I'll give you a for instance. A for instance, a lead comes through the pipeline somehow, either outbound or inbound, yep. and the you know founder does a demo, a discovery call, and then they just send a follow up email, and then there's no real process of follow up. It's they don't have stages built into their CRM. They don't know how to handle it if a certain objection comes through. There's a lot of different like nuanced scenarios that happen, and so mm-hmm. I come in and I say, well, let me coach you on how to actually do the the sales itself. And what process we need to implement at this stage. Once we have enough sort of data to say, you know, in the last three months, we know that if we handle sales this way, if we do a, these amount of calls, et cetera, et cetera, then it'll yield X 
dollars in revenue. Once we have that, it's time to then hire account executives or sales reps to take over the founder-led sales motion. And then I would go in and I would start hiring salespeople or, or co-author, sort of co-hire with the founder and um, coach them, train them, build out a playbook, and then um, be there to as a co-pilot. That's the short of it. Nice. So, so when you talk about playbooks, like, so again, I'm not a salesperson, I'm a marketer, um, although I kind of always work closely with sales. Like, like, what do you mean by a playbook? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, a playbook is something that can be referenced when you are doing, I'm, I'm putting my own definition on it, but um, think of it as a, um, I'll use sports, right? There's playbooks for sports. So you have, I follow basketball. So in a, in a basketball game, the coach has a set of playbooks to run for the team, depending on uh, the team that they're playing, the way the team is actually playing, if it's playoff season, if not. And so the way I think about playbooks for sales is there are certain moves, certain motions that you want to use depending on the sales scenario. So for example, if you're speaking to a prospect that is using a competitor but now is evaluating your solution. There's a certain play you want to run against that. You can't run that same play from a to a prospect that's coming to from a competitor uh -huh. to a prospect that's not using a solution at all. That's coming from scratch. It, it, they have a different. There's a different buyer persona. There's a different uh, psychology. There's a different. I call FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt that comes with that type of deal. Um, Let's say it's end of the month. Are you what kind of playbook are you running to close out your pipeline for the end of the month? Are you using discounts? And if so, how are you using discounts? Is that the right way to do it? Um, there's a playbook for hiring. How are you going to onboard a new rep quickly so they're actually hitting quota really, really fast and the stuff that you're teaching them during the onboarding is retained? Um, what if you're dealing with a larger sales cycle? You're dealing with a you know hundred thousand dollar deal. You're not going to run the same play on that as you would a you know, $10,000 deal. And so there's different plays you want to run based on the different buyer personas, buying scenarios, different like sales emotions that come in. Um, think of it like a, you know, like a cheat sheet, but yeah. a lot more in depth. So I'll tell you when, when I've kind of been trained in the past for sales, when I was running my agency, um, you know, when I was working off, I wouldn't say in a playbook, but you know, scripts, let's say, right. I always felt that it was very, impersonal and sincere that I was kind of walking somebody through a process and it kind of seemed transparent almost that that's what I was doing. Um, and I've been on sales calls myself as a buyer where I've just kind of felt like, oh, I see what you're doing over here. I, I see the steps that, you know, the salesperson is taking me from and it. And it feels, um, it doesn't feel like a natural conversation between two people. It just feels like there's a sales process going on. Like, how, how do you avoid that problem? Yeah. I mean, I feel it too, right? If, if I get on a, I won't, I'll even, like, I, I like, there are some big name companies like Gong, right? Cool, cool yeah. product and all that. Great marketing. Um, and I've gotten on sales calls with companies like Gong and others, and I knew what they were doing, um, and I knew that they were trying to build rapport with me because that was that's how they it sounded like it, it sounded like they're going through a template. So the way to do that is you have to make well, you have to coach. So you you in the playbook there is a section probably for building rapport, doing discovery, etc. But it's up to the person that's coaching the salespeople how to take that portion of the playbook and sort of mold it to their personality. Uh -huh. So the playbook is going to have, it's going to be like a template of some sorts, but the personalization will really come through the reinforcement of the coaching. 
So maybe, for example, I'll give you a, a perfect example. Yep. Um, I like setting an objective, and I and I teach this to a lot of companies and, and salespeople and founders. When you're starting the sales call, whether it's the first call, sales call or the second one, you want to state the reason why you and the prospect are there. So that way, when you start asking them questions and you're going through your emotions, it's not like, huh, what are you showing me? And so I may say something like, hey, Aaron, I'm glad we're able to connect today. You know, the purpose of today's call is to learn a little bit more about some of the challenges that you're having and see if we're fit for you. And if we, we're not, I'm happy to recommend you to other folks. Um, and if we are, then we could talk about next steps. But there's no way for me to know if we're fit if I, if I know a little bit more about what you're dealing with. So is it okay with you if I just ask you a few questions? So like that opener is what I call setting an objective. And because I've set the objective and you and you and I've asked permission to ask my questions yeah. and you say yes, I now have permission to go do my thing, right? Like do the, the sales thing. But another salesperson may not use the word the purpose of today's call. They feel may feel, hey, the you know the goal of today's call is, right? Like they, they may use the word the goal. So every salesperson has their own like personality and certain words that they come up with that feels more natural to them. Yeah. And so one of the ways is to coach them on the framework first. And then based on that, you would tweak it based on the personality. Everyone's got their style. No, but but I, I like that approach by, by setting, you know, the goal or the purpose, wherever you want to put it, because it gives you the permission, so to speak, to to go into, you know, here's the questions. I'm going through a process and, and the buyer will understand you're going through a process. You're working off a list of questions that, that make yeah. sense. But but you've framed it that I'm doing it for your benefits so that I can provide you the best value and get get the most you know thing for your buck and your time. Yeah, if you tell yeah exactly, just be transparent as hell about about what's happening. I mean, the rapport building. I wouldn't tell them that you're about to build a rapport. Just build a rapport if you, you're able to. If you're not able to, don't force it. Um, Isn't that just generally called like being a normal person and having a conversation? Yeah, like I can say something like I'll give you an example. Like, oh, I see you're using. Um, uh, a ring light behind you. What kind of ring light is that? Right. I just the way I built rapport off of that was because I just noticed something in, in your background, and I fed off of that. Mm-hmm. And so, one way to build rapport is as like a, a tactical way is just notice the surroundings of the person that you're talking to. If you're on a Zoom call or, in this case, Riverside, mm-hmm. um, notice the surroundings and call it out if you have something to talk about it. Um, otherwise, if you have nothing, then it should the rapport build should be based on whatever research you've done on the prospect in advance. So went on LinkedIn, maybe you saw some stuff, maybe you went on YouTube, maybe you, you're subscribed to their newsletter. Um, yeah, and so sort of jumping around, but rapport building should be more natural, should be forced. And then if you're about, and you know you're going to ask them your discovery questions, but you don't want it to sound like fake authenticity, then just tell them that you're going to ask them questions and then ask for permission. Makes a lot of sense. Um... What's the, besides some of the things we've touched on already, what, what are some of the biggest things that salespeople tend to mess up? And you've coached a lot of people and, and obviously if they're looking for coaching, they're probably not fully optimized or people mess yeah. up the most. I mean, the one that just sticks out every time is uh, discovery or lack of. Um, they're usually doing very shallow discovery. Um, they, and what I mean by shallow is maybe they'll ask a couple of questions and then move on to the actual demo itself. And then the demo is over and they actually don't know how to close the prospect. They don't know how to do a follow-up. Every follow-up sounds something like, hey, just circling back to see if you're ready to sign up. Hey, is this something that you still are, are interested in? And it has they don't have enough sort of juice and data about the prospect 
that they should have done via discovery that they can leverage as part of closing the deal or of the follow-up process. Mm-hmm. So what would a good discovery process look like? So I like that you said process, right? Because most people think discover. I don't say most people, but I'll, there's a mistake that discovery is more of a stage and not a process. Mm-hmm. So think of like think of like your CRM, you have different stages or in marketing, right? You have your, um, actually, I don't know what the stages are. It would be in marketing, but at least in sales, you have like, you have discovery, you have free trial, you have demo, you have follow-up. These are all stages. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice discovery is usually like one of the stages in the CRM. But the truth is discovery is more of a process because you're doing discovery in the beginning of the call. You're doing it on a demo. You're doing it after the demo as part of your follow-ups. It's, it's just always part of the flow. Um, so to answer your question, what's a good discovery process? The discovery should be completely... Um, think of it like a solar system. You have the sun and everything orbits the sun. So what is the sun in in sales or discovery? And the answer is pain, the, the prospect pain. Okay. Um, so no pain, no sale. So is the first object, the objective of every salesperson, whether you're founder-led or not, should be to understand the prospect's pain, like the, the, what problems are they having in the business? And then on top of that, how big are those problems? If we're, think, if we're talking on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being buildings on fire, we need to solve this ASAP, and 0 being, hey, not really a pain, just sort of curious, where does that fall in the prospect's world? Uh-huh. If their pain is like a 1, anything sub 7, chances are you're, they're not going to be as motivated to buy your product. And, it, and the only way to really motivate them to buy your product if they don't have that much of a pain is by using aggressive discounting. Because they're just loyal to the discount. Um, if their pain is an you know eight, nine, and a ten, they're going to pay a premium for peace of mind, right? So like taxes, I had to pay taxes. Uh, my first year in business was first time I did that. Like a good chunk of money that came out of my my bank. Yep. And I had other things I could have invested in instead of oh, it's not investment, but could have paid right. I could have paid off my credit card bill. I could have done all that. But with credit cards, I can renegotiate that. I can do balance transfer. With IRS, you don't want to mess with the IRS because if you screw around, you get penalized and you, or you can go to jail. That pain, that impact of that pain is so high that I'm willing to just pay the price and just to have peace of mind, right? So the goal, the, the best way to start or to figure out, to think about discovery is it should all be hovered around or orbiting around the prospect's pain and the, the size of the problem. So, so you spoke about before, you know, once you've done a good discovery process, it makes the whole follow-up process much easier. So you've, you've had the call, you've discovered their pains, and now you could send a more, what I say, effective follow-up sequence, you know, when you're emailing them, trying to, trying to get them back on. Like, how, how, do, how do you do that process, I guess, when there's, when there's no new announcement, when there's no new feature, when, there, when there's nothing new to sell, how do you continue to find the little touch points to reach out to those people, the prospects? Yeah, so I mean, if you do a really effective, if typically typical sales cycles, you either have a discovery and a demo is combined, depending on the size mm-hmm. of the deal. Sometimes, um, I mean, if marketing does a really good job, they can generate a bunch of inbound leads for you in the demo request form. Mm-hmm. Some companies will have um, the SDR take that first call and do a light discovery just to yeah. qualify the lead and then give it to an account executive. Um, if you've done if you've done a really good beginning discovery process you found out the pain you found out the size so the the four things i want to 
sort of teach people when you're doing discovery before even doing the demo that you need to know. Yeah. One, pain. Two, size of pain. Three is who's that pain impacting? And four, when do they want to solve that pain by? Or when do they at least want to start solving that pain? So that's essentially the timeline. There's other ones, but those are like my four that I really want to find out. If you do a really good job of that, the demo itself will be really effective because when you're actually doing the demo, you're not just showing features that mark that you know product developed or that your CEO wants or marketing is pushing on landing pages. Mm-hmm. You're only showing the features that are solving those pains that the prospect mentioned earlier on that's keeping them up at night or you know mm-hmm. keeping their boss up at night. So a demo, let's say you have a software with 100 features, but the prospect has two problems within their business that is causing them to look at your product. And out of your 100 features, there are really only three features that are going to solve those two problems. Yeah, That's really where the demo should be revolved around. Those, only, those two features that solve, or those three features or two features that solve one of those two pains. Once you've done that, the setting up next steps is easy. The following, the follow-up, how do you like come up with touch points that are not... So the touch points have nothing to do or should be nothing to do with the features that you have. Every follow-up should really be more about the actual prospect itself. So I'll give you a for instance. Um, let's say you know the prospect is... One of the things that they're having a problem with is... Um, I don't know, generating more pipeline or converting more pipeline. So... Uh, close one deals and you have a software we'll use gong as an example you have a software that helps them record the calls analyze the calls and coach the reps against it that's just one part of the equation the other parts of the equation is like play having a sales playbook um having the right script potentially or the frameworks so a follow-up email or multiple follow-up touch points can be, be more about that part so let's say you're selling gong if i'm an, an account executive at gong my follow-up beyond just like whatever agreed next steps we had would be, hey, Aaron, you mentioned on our call that one of the things that you really want to improve is how quickly your sales reps are actually closing deals. And I have a few frameworks that we use that works really well. If your team uses it and you coach against it, you'll, it'll move the needle for you. Here are these frameworks. You're not pitching Gong. You're, just, you're pitching the business problem or the, 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 the yeah. business solution. So you should think about follow-ups in general as more about less about the product that you're you're selling or the features that you're offering, and more about solving that prospect problem with different strategies and ideas. Think of yourself as like a consultant, a high-paid advisor. Your follow-up should really be about teaching them how to solve that problem but outside of your con- solution. Should there be any con- well outside the solution is kind of my question. So should there be any concern about giving them ways to solve the problem? that are outside of your of your product, essentially, like by giving them other solutions that maybe they feel like, okay, we could find other ways to do this without investing in the software. Yeah, I mean, you want to be strategic about it, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself, like, I'll give you a, for example, I sell services, that's part of my, I don't sell product, like a software company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have discovery calls with founders, and they need help with closing or pipeline or whatever it is. And so I'll send them, let's just say, um, a framework for what the playbook should be, a sales playbook should be. And it wasn't part of our conversation, but it's something that they should have as they start to scale. Technically, they can say, you know what, now we have the now we have a framework for the playbook. Why do we need more? But you'll, they'll need to know how to actually implement the playbook. I'm, I'm giving them the what, not the how. Yeah. 
the, the phrase, like, I guess it sounds like that I've always liked it, is useful but, inco but incomplete. Yeah. So it kind of gets them part of the way there, but they're, but they're not quite there. They need more from you still. They, they need the implementation, right? Yeah. So like, if, again, if you're selling Gong and you're giving them a framework or a script, that's not going to solve the, the overarching problem of we need to we need to coach our team better but we don't have access to their calls and we don't know what they're saying and we can't do it at scale a script won't solve that problem that just it's going to solve part of that problem but the overall problem is you need a call recording software to analyze hundreds of calls simultaneously yeah. that's th that's the the value prop yeah, for makes sense. so you've given us a bunch of information about how to deal better on the call itself, even how to follow up on the call. One of the problems I know a lot of companies have is, is show up rates, that they're getting people to schedule calls and meetings, but, but a lot of people aren't showing up. Do you have any solutions or, or advice on how to, how to improve show up rates? Yeah, I'll give you, um, I'll answer that question with a metaphor or an analogy. I actually don't know what the difference is, but either way, you'll get the gist of it. Um, have you ever gone to like a restaurant and you wanted to sit by the booth with your wife? But then it had like a little, you know, placeholder there that said reserved. That ever happened to you? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Immediately you're like, ah, well, I can't sit there. That's reserved. Somebody must be coming because they have that thing placed there. Or you go to a wedding or an event and you have like a paper stuck to the chairs reserved. Ooh, reserved. It must be important. Someone important is coming. And two, they must be coming. And so I thought about that a lot. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It worked really well for like, life stuff, right? Like going to a restaurant, going to a concert, going to an event. Well, what if we take a day-to-day -day scenario and apply it to sales? And as a side note, that is how I approach sales. Mm -hmm. I, if I'm trying to, if I'm in an elevator and I meet somebody in the elevator and I strike up a conversation and now we're best friends, I take that scenario. I'm like, well, how can I apply that in sales? Anyways, so then I, I started experimenting and I created, when I created an event on my calendar with a prospect, Typically, the a sales event name with a prospect that companies do is demo with Aaron or demo with Gong, right? And it's just like, it's very transactional. What I started doing was in the beginning of the event name, I would say reserved for Aaron. And then I put maybe like an emoji. And there's something there. It's, it's, it's been work. It works for me. There's something there that makes the person realize, oh, well, same the same reaction you feel when you see reserved on a table, same idea. Um, so that's something that's like a very little tactical. Well, that's just like a little hack. like hack you would put like in like the uh, the calendar invite, like when you said the name of the invite. calendar. Yeah, the name of the yeah. calendar. It wouldn't start with demo. It would say reserved for Aaron, which would be the prospect's name, and then yeah. anything else that I wanted to include in that calendar would come after. And the reason why you I do it that way, demo and all that, you would just put it after the reserved for. Yeah, it would get sort of lost and the. The reason why is because they won't see that on their calendar. What they will see on the calendar is reserved for, and then their name. Everybody recognizes their name, right? Especially if you're dealing with executives where their, their calendars are flooded with events and invites. It gets it just get lost. But when you – like I can see a list of 100 people. I can catch my name within a second. And so I think there's a psychology there by putting reserved and then a person's first name, it just catches their eye. And then if you want, add an that makes it really stand out. Look at your calendar now. I doubt there's an emoji in front of any event name. I think you're right. So you put any emoji, whatever it is. It could be like the siren emoji, you know, the police siren. It could be um, like that alert um, warning symbol. Um, yeah. 
But that's an example of like a little hack that increases your show up rates. Other ones is depending on when you're booking this event. It's if, if it's on the phone, then just asking the prospect to let you know if they're able to make it or not is just a really easy way to mm-hmm. increase your show up rate. Usually with email, text, like how do you do that? No, so if you're on your phone, let's say I mean you are on a, on a, on a sales call, whatever it is. Yeah. And then we're planning to book our demo. I may say something like, Aaron, um, my only ask is if for whatever reason or not, you're not able to make it on Thursday at 2 p.m. Can you just let me know? Uh-huh. Like, I just, I'll just ask you for help. I'll just ask no, you but, for but that That's favor. a situation where there's already a, the discovery call before the actual demo call. Yeah. So for, I know some of your audience is like marketing folks. So, <clears throat> um, so if they're doing it from like a top of funnel move, then one, the name of the event itself, like the way I explained it with emoji and then having reserved in, in big letters with the first name, yeah. um, having an automatic SMS that goes after, then maybe having um, somebody follow up, it could be an SDR, it could be an AE, whatever it is, saying, hey, Aaron, saw that you booked for Thursday at 14. I just wanted to call and introduce myself um, more. I'd be the person you're going to talk to on Thursday. Um, I just want to make sure this, so Thursday at two, is there any reason why you wouldn't be able to make it? Thursday works for you? Yeah, cool. So I just may like reinforce that call, reinforce that event by just calling that prospect in advance. Uh-huh. Cool. I like it. Um, I want to talk about your LinkedIn profile and uh, prolific content. You've been growing like crazy over there with your content. Before I do, is there anything else that we should know about sales or like any important things that I didn't ask you about? <laughs> Okay, um, no, I'm sure there is, right? I mean, the 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 question the question that you asked is a common question that salespeople ask prospects. Is there anything else that we should know about your business that I didn't ask? And I right, like that. that <laughs> no, no, I, no. But I just, you have a lot of content, and, and you're coaching and training a lot of people. And if you've got just like this is the thing that everybody needs to know, then I want to make sure that I yeah. give you the opportunity to teach it to the audience, even if I didn't ask you about. It. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, right? Like so. Uh, you know, one of the things that I do is I ask even non-customers, like, what are you focused on? What's the top of mind for you right now in terms of sales uh, this quarter? <clears throat> and it's like a mixture of like three things. One, top of funnel. We want we want to generate more pipeline. Two, it's we want to get better at, at really uncovering the prospect's pain. And three, we want to shorten the sales cycle and get to the power faster. Like that's the, most, the three most common things that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I dig a little bit deeper on generating more pipeline and sort of I look under the hood to see what they're doing. I talk about this sort of a lot is everyone's trying to do outbound at scale because it's efficient, right? It's it's a lot more efficient when you're sending out thousands of emails a day or whatever it is because you're able to cover more ground. But what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for efficiency or are you optimizing for results? In my opinion, outbound at scale like that, unless you have a huge team, doesn't really work. I mean, I think to an extent you could automate certain things, but in, like my general rule of thumb is, you really want to be effective in in building out pipeline from like a sales motion, not a marketing motion. Then you got to go more of that personal. You got to go slower, more one to one or one to few. Um, so I think that's one mistake. So companies are like, yeah, we're we have a thousand emails. We have a bunch of these emails. We're going to blast it out. We're not getting results. It's and then you look at the emails. It's because they're shit. They're, they're they're crap. And again, great job at optimizing for skill, but bad job for optimizing for reply. Yeah. Um, so that's one thought. Um, and I think the other mistake is companies are trying to cold call 
and or cold prospect. Some of them don't even cold call, so cold email, etc. In order to build familiarity, so uh, for instance, they will cold email you and prospect to you so that you will be familiar with their company, so that you can say, yeah, let's jump on a call. When they really should be doing building familiarity first, so that they can prospect to you because you're more likely to say yes. If I now add to yeah, but that look like outreach is that like you know ads targeting them on on LinkedIn or Facebook or like what does that look like? Yeah, it'd be a, it would be a mix. It would be if we're talking about like from a marketing perspective. Yeah, it would be maybe ads, but not pitching um, a demo. It would be more educational, entertaining, educational. So yeah. think of like a really amazing like LinkedIn post that really has no agenda but just to teach and build a brand. Mm-hmm. It'd be more like that. Um, so think of like Nike commercials. They're not telling you. If you go on, you know, Labor Day sale, buy three Nikes, that's more cars. It's more transactional. Nike commercials, yeah. it's more inspirational. inspirational. Yeah, it, 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 it's memorable. That's how I think that's one way from a marketing perspective. Another one would be like from lead, like generating lead magnets, a bunch of really rich, resourced, high-quality lead magnets mm-hmm. that build more value within your brand. Another one would be taking this like ABM approach. Um, that I don't think a lot of companies are doing it or know how to do. And I've just been experimenting with it, but I've been very successful at it. And I, I'm really getting the gist of it where mm-hmm. you're finding accounts that you want to penetrate and identifying which accounts, which of those accounts are relatively active on social or I'll say LinkedIn, and then engaging in their posts with meaningful comments, meaningful engagement, and not even like going for the sale at all. It's just building familiarity with them, going back and forth in DM, not having to talk about business. Once you have enough of that like familiarity, it doesn't have to be crazy like we know each other for life, but it has to be enough where the, when they see your name, like, yeah, I've seen him before. That's enough. Then you cold email them. Mm-hmm. And it could be like, hey, Aaron, it's more from LinkedIn. You're more mm-hmm. likely to open that email and potentially respond because we've engaged before for the last few weeks or months, whatever it is. Yeah, 100%. So, so how would you manage that process of engaging? But let's say you had a, only got a list of 100 in your ABM list you know, of, of your dream clients. It's really a lot of people. Let's say, you know, if there, there's, I don't know, one person. 100 accounts, 100 leads. Like 100 accounts, right? Not a lot, right? But but how, how would you create a process to be engaging with those people's content? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, so the, I'll tell you, like, well, 100 is not a lot, actually. 100 is very few. But, but it's still a lot of people to be keeping up with their posts and being aware when they post and all that. Yeah, I mean, so are you making the assumption that 100... So within that 100 accounts, I would identify which... Which buyer personas would I be um, engaging with on LinkedIn? Would it be yeah. someone above the line? So the end decision maker, like the executive level, right? If you're, depending on who you're selling to, maybe you're selling to a VP of marketing or CMO, whatever it is. Um, is it them? Um, or is it going to be people that are sort of bottom of the line? So um, for example, a marketing associate. They're definitely not going to be the person that's going to be making the decision, but they definitely have intel that they can give you about overall marketing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I would identify who would be the people that you're going, ultimately the people that you want to get in the room with, so the executive level. And then once you've identified them, then I'd say, well, which ones are actually active, right? Because a larger company can have a VP of marketing, a senior director of marketing, a senior VP of marketing, right? Depending on the size. Mm-hmm. So I'd identify who your buyer personas are. And you can do that by just looking at your closed one deals. Um, if you're if you're if you're a startup that have traction, look at closed one deals. Then 
retroactively look at who your buyer personas were and who was involved in the deal, and then just build out that. And then find out out of those, which ones are actually active on LinkedIn. And the, the definition of active is, are they at least going, you know, are they, are they posting on LinkedIn consistently? Are they reposting others? Are they commenting? Some people don't actually post on LinkedIn, but they just comment on other posts. Yeah. Right? You have to define like what is active on LinkedIn. And then once you do that, your list is going to shrink down. Right? You can have 100 accounts, but in, in, at each 100 accounts, you have like 50 or you have like you know, 10 people that you need to follow up with or that yeah. are people in the accounts. Well, out of those 10, how many are actually relatively active on LinkedIn? It's not going to be a lot. Does that become effective? So if you've got 100 accounts, then you like narrow that down to like, you know, 10, 20 people that are actually active on LinkedIn. Now you're only looking at a handful of people that you're interacting with. Is that, is that an efficient process in terms of just, just scale? When you only I, that's how, yeah, I mean, that's how I do it, right? So, um, and I'm, I'm relatively new-ish to the ABM model, but I, I sort of been doing it um, for the past year without realizing it was it's called ABM. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, right? Like one or two people that, have some stake in the game like let's just say you have access to those accounts and the only people that are relatively active on linkedin are people below the line so think of an associate you know mm-hmm. someone junior or someone senior but they're not an executive not your decision maker well i can still what they what happens is if you start engaging in their post who follows their post their executive their bosses follow that post and when they find when that lower level person find something of value on LinkedIn, they'll share it on Slack. I, I know because when I have like a lead magnet or I talk to, you know, prospects or whatever it is, they say, oh, I found it because I someone in your in our Slack channel or in our company shared it in our Slack channel. So it happens behind closed doors. Chris Walker talks about like the dark social, right? Like that's what it is. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll start engaging with folks like that, like maybe a lower level AE, for example, in my world, a lower, you know, a salesperson. Once we have a little bit of that, like back and forth, I may say something like, hey, Aaron, by the way, like, I know we've been engaging from time to time. I'm actually thinking about um, prospecting into your org, um, but I wanted to like run this by you and just get your thoughts. Do you have, you know, would you be open for a few minutes to chat? Mm-hmm. And AEs or lower level people are more likely to do that, to say like, yeah, because they have more of the time. They're not like, they're not bombarded with. And they'll give you the insider info to help you figure out how to sell into the organization. Yeah, who's getting pitched most of the time? It's executives, not the lower level people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you can still use that to your advantage. I've done that before. Very so, I was trying to prospect into a, a SaaS company, and so I found a lower level or or lower level person. So we call it an AE <clears throat> that um, we were connected on LinkedIn. We sort of loosely engage in terms of they like my my content sometimes or whatever it is, and so I started mm-hmm. DMing them, warming it up, nurturing it. And then I told them after a couple of weeks, hey, I'm, pr- I'm planning on prospecting to your, to your org. Why don't we do this? Why don't I offer you a free sales coaching call? And in return, you help me draft up an email to your boss. And so we bartered. And they literally drafted the entire email, actually, for me. Mm-hmm. And then I emailed it to the boss. And, and then that email was circulated in the company because the boss was like, that's how you write an email. right?" <laughs> and so <laughs> I was, there was a lot of behind the scenes happening. But... Yeah, just because it's someone below the line doesn't mean it's not worth worth engaging. That's a really interesting story. I think there was like a, a, I don't know if it was in like in Judaism and like the Torah or somewhere else. It was it could have been somewhere in the Torah. I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll recall how I remember it. Yeah. If you're trying to negotiate, if you're trying to ask something from the king, um, or something like ask his wife, or something like that. I don't remember how it was, but it's like because. 
if you're gonna go straight to the king, it, it, you don't have influence. But the yeah. wife does, or the queen does in this case. Mm-hmm. So that's how I thought about it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So we're talking about yeah. LinkedIn content. Good, good segue. You've been uh, you post what twice twice a day on LinkedIn. I I've been I do minimum one one a day. If I have something that really is like, um, it's itching me and I really want to post it, then I'll, I'll make that post. So that'll be like the second a day. And I'm, but I'm seeing over time, even at one, one a day, which is, you know, significant time commitment and, and, and energy commitment. You're getting more and more engagement, more comments, more likes, everything, you know, it's really growing. How do you, how do you maintain that cadence? Cause you're, your posts are meaty. I mean, like, like I, I, I yeah. read each one and I learn a lot of sales techniques in there. Like, how are you constantly coming up with so much? Great stuff, and 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 how do you? What's your process for content creation? Yeah, so there's a lot in there, and I'll, I'll give you a little backstory. Prior to that, I used to say, well, my goal is to have a ton of posts scheduled out for the month, and so there was a period of time where I, I spent like a full Sunday just drafting out a bunch of posts posts for a month, and I was like, ah, good, great, now I'm good, I can focus on other stuff, and those posts were a disaster. Like it didn't it didn't do well. So I said, I and and. I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't understand why my posts aren't doing so well. And so I was like, you know what? I'll just work on one post really well. I'll spend like an hour on it if I have to. I'll treat it like a blog. I'll spend a long time on it. And I did that. And it was one of my posts in the last couple months that ended up, it was my first time I've ever had more than 1,000 likes. I think it was like 1,500 or 2,000 likes. And yeah, and that post took me from like 10,000 followers to like 15,000 followers overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it got reshared and commented, et cetera. And so I was like, wow, okay, something, something did well here. What was it? And so I uh, sort of dissected it. And yeah, it was, I did, I took my, the, the stuff that I would typically charge for, so to speak, mm-hmm. like the good stuff. And I made it public. I made it available, which is very hard for me to do because in my head, my thought process was, well, if they read this and why would they need me? And that's the wrong way to think about it because I bought an, I bought a lot of courses where the courses are really meaty, but even at the end of the course, I'm like, I need someone to like take what I just learned in the course and help me help coach me because it's so nuanced to my use case, and that's how I that's how it is with content, and so that's how I that's like the, the mindset of the post. Um, I usually so now I don't do a month worth of posts in advance because it takes too long because I have a lot of meaty posts. I do a week's worth of posts in advance, maximum two. Um, so that's my sort of my cadence. And I usually will start writing the post anywhere between like Friday to Sunday. Obviously, Saturdays, no. Um, and a lot of my post ideas come from my comments. So I spend about an hour or two a day on LinkedIn. Part of that is engaging with at least 10 influential accounts on LinkedIn on their comments, on their posts, like commenting on their posts. Mm-hmm. And I that alone takes a long time because you have to read their posts and then you want to think of a really good comment. And the way I think about it is I want my comment to be good enough where the comment could actually be a post. <clears throat> so that's why I only handle 10, you know, no more than 10 accounts to engage with a day on LinkedIn. And that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I'll write a comment and then I'll tweak the comment and I'm like, that could be a post. And then I, I will email myself saying like LinkedIn post. And then the day that I, you know, like Monday starts or Sunday starts, I'll block out a time of my, my creative time. So for me, usually morning time um, is when I'm more creative in terms of creating content. Mm-hmm. And then I'll look at 
you know, so imagine you're doing this every week, right? You're commenting on posts, like, oh, that could be a good post. And then you're putting it to the side. And then every week, I go to that folder in my email, and then I take one of those posts. I'm like, am I in the mood? Am I feeling creative around this topic? And if so, then, yeah, let me tweak it around. So that's one approach to creating content. Another approach to creating content effectively is I have templates, more or less templates. So um, what people really like is, what I've noticed in posts at least, is when you share something, there's a difference between telling people, here's how to grow your top of funnel marketing in five ways, in five steps Mm -hmm. versus last month I grew my by 50% following these five steps. That one is going to perform better because you're sharing a personal story. You're not just saying do this. You're saying I've done this and it's worked. Here's what I, here's how it worked. Um, And so I have like these types of hooks and templates already saved up in a notion and a whole playbook that I created for myself um, and I even tested this on on certain accounts, like the, the advisory like companies that I work with. Mm-hmm. Like, and I read their posts; they suck. And I'm like, here, let me rewrite a post for you. And they started getting leads just from that post. And so I have templates. That's one approach. Um, and then I have different themes of posts. So you have listicle, which is like, here are 20 things that you should do if you want to grow from here to here in you know 90 days. These are like lists. Then I have like personal stories. Um, then I'll have like before and after. Um, it's like a theme. Uh, I'll have um, uh, teardowns. So I'll maybe evaluate like a discovery call or a demo, whatever it is. And then I'll write down all the stuff that they, that was bad about my experience and I'll just share that as post. Um, so that's how I think about posts. Um, and so, yeah, there's cadence. So once a week and I plan that out in a week in advance. Um, I usually dedicate my Fridays to um, promoting my newsletter. Mondays, I always want my Monday post to be extremely educational and, and a tad um, entertaining. And the reason why is because nobody likes coming back from the weekend. And so, if you're going to have a post on Monday that's promoting your product, people are like not being not not are not going to be in the mood for that. If you're going to have a post that's just going to be too educational, people are not in the mood for that. They don't have the, the bandwidth for it. They just came off of a weekend. So it has to be super entertaining where it's almost like lighthearted, but really tactical. So those are my Monday posts. My Mondays are now my most important days of the week, in my opinion, for me, for me at least. And then Friday, Fridays, it's a little softer. And I experiment all the time. I just experiment. Well, it seems like what you're doing is working, at least from the point of view of the engagement that I see on your posts. I guess the why. What? Why are you spending so much time focusing on LinkedIn? And it, like, what impact is this having on your, on your business? By, by just being so prolific, prolific with your content. LinkedIn versus like other social platforms? Meaning you're, what you just described is, is a big time commitment, right? You know, I know you're trying to build a business right now as a consultant with, with your coaching programs. What, why, why is LinkedIn the place where you've decided to invest so much? And what, what, kind, of, what kind of results are you seeing? Yeah, so for LinkedIn, um, and the, the reason for LinkedIn is because, versus like Twitter, for example. Twitter is also a goldmine. But yeah. the downside with Twitter is you don't have the same search capabilities like you do on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Um, LinkedIn, I already it's I already know it. I know how to work it. It's, it's very convenient. But if you're talking to me a few years ago, like why LinkedIn? It's that like LinkedIn was known for B two B professionals. Twitter was not, and it's yeah. again, and it's harder to identify. And the reason why I went on all in on LinkedIn because I remember five years ago when I got married, I was scrolling through LinkedIn. Every day I was on LinkedIn often, <clears throat> and almost everything throughout my newsfeed was someone 
reposting their blog or reposting a video, and it was always promotional. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a everyone's. It's not entertaining. There's nothing cool here, and so I thought, well, that's a room for opportunity. I can start having different types of posts. Like right now on LinkedIn, there's not there's a lot of text posts, a lot of carousels, but you don't see a lot of videos on LinkedIn. And if they do, the videos, cl- the video clips are really bad. Um, and so that's an opportunity to do video clips. Um, so I went on all LinkedIn for a couple of reasons. One, I saw an opportunity that it was all, the content there was really bad. Two, the search capabilities is really easy to identify your buyer persona. And I work in B2B, so it makes sense. Um, three, I read like a bunch of data on LinkedIn that uh, like all of their users, how many are active and how many are actually posting. It was very, very small. I'm like, oh my gosh, like the people that are posting content was a very small fraction. And if what I and that percentage of people that were posting content on LinkedIn were the people that were just like reposting their blog, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what an opportunity! Um, so that's why LinkedIn, why brand and social in general, and that wasn't really a question, but I, I'm gonna answer that anyways. Prior to doing LinkedIn and in building my business, <clears throat> I was gonna build out, I was gonna do an Amazon, so I started selling stuff on Amazon. I didn't like um, having inventory. I didn't like being dependent on wholesalers and manufacturers and and uh, you know shipping and all this crap. I was like, well, if I build a business around my name, my brand, anything that I launch under my name, my my name being the umbrella, will do really well because I have so much leverage within my name. And so I went all um, and and also I'm like, if I lose a job, if I get fired, if I can't find a job, if I have a brand, I can create work for myself, right. and um, that's something that I'm very bullish about, extremely bullish about. There's very few things that I'm very bullish about. Brand is one of them. And think about personal like personal brand, any brand, just like build a brand. Yeah. You can build a brand around like Nike built a brand. It's not about Phil Knight, but it's around Nike. So yeah. the idea is just build a brand. You want, okay. you want your name to be synonymous with whatever it is that you want people to essentially purchase. Right. Um, and, and that was reinforced when Gary Vaynerchuk essentially said the same thing why he wants to build a brand when he when he launched uh when when he started i think he bought or launched k-swiss or he didn't launch k-swiss but he like bought it or whatever it is and he 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 created uh, uh a new wine company and he ended up selling it for like crazy amount of money he already had the brand that was giving him all the leverage um so that's the whole thesis around building a brand now success on linkedin yeah um so i generate about Five to ten, ten being a very good week leads a week. Um, four or five on on the lower, you know, low end. Like right there's some outliers, on, just on LinkedIn. Yeah, it's awesome. Those are big numbers for uh, you know, a solopreneur, so to speak. Yeah, and imagine if you have a team and then they they can replicate what you do, and you have a team of like five people, three, whatever it is, you can generate a lot more leads. And again, what I, I don't even sell product, I sell. A service, which is very, very hard. Um, if you're selling a product, if I were an, a, a in Gong or one of those software companies, I'd probably generate a lot more because I'm not selling a service. It's nobody, you know, it's service selling a service. A lot of it comes with word of mouth referrals. So it's a lot harder to build up. <clears throat> but I track and I have all spreadsheet how I, I approach LinkedIn every day. I spend uh, within the hour or two. I comment on at least ten people's posts that have influence. I um, DM at least 10 people. I connect with at least 10 people within my buyer persona or within my circle. Um, I will create content. I will um, 
yeah, a little bit of everything. And then I just track everything on a daily. That's awesome. Inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm looking at my, my spreadsheet now. Last week, let's see. Last week, um, and every week I track my followers, how many followers I have. So last, or two weeks ago, I had 23,000 followers. I checked this morning, I have 23,560. 23, but in two weeks, I'll have 24,000. By the end of the year, I'll probably have 30,000, depending on how active I am during the week. Mm-hmm. Love it. Um, let's wrap up. I've got my lightning round of questions. A couple quick questions, quick answers. Uh, first question is what book would you recommend to listeners to read? It could be a, a business book, a fiction book, whatever you like. I mean, I, mo- I read mostly, um, business books. Um, I really, co- any like copywriting books. I'm trying to think right here. Um, traffic secrets, Russell Brunson's a good one. Um, and it's it's a copy it sounds like it's a copywriting book. It teaches you messaging and the psychology, and that works for sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably for your listeners, um, it would make sense if they're in marketing. And it yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm looking at it now. It's right in front of me. There's a lot more, but yeah. I mean, traffic okay. secrets That's is a good, good one. one. Your favorite marketing or productivity tool? I love Notion. Notion. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And who's your favorite marketer or business leader that you're following these days? Um, I so the, the person I'm consuming their content a lot right now is uh, Taki Moore. I think uh-huh. we talked about it once. He's uh he's in the coaching coaching space, but um, yeah, I, I consume his stuff, and he's good. And and I also I'm sort of self aware, so I'm like, why am I consuming his stuff? What's what about his the way he's creating content is causing me to consume it. And that within itself is intriguing to even think about. Um, so him for now. And there's a few others, yeah. but that's the one that pops into my mind. Taki's actually got on my, my radar a bit lately as well. So Yeah. Nathan Latka from time to time. I think Nathan Latka is a genius growth hacker. Just very outside the box. For sure he is. Um, and final question is, is where can listeners go to learn more about you and connect with you? Yeah, so um, they can go to my LinkedIn um, if they want to learn more about um, you know, my services. They can go to my website demotoclose.com. If any of the listeners heard, like, yeah, we want to improve our sales and discovery, then they can download. I have a list of twenty-four of my top discovery questions where you can quantify the pain. Um, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I launched it less than nine days ago. I have over forty-five hundred downloads already on it and so we'll you can find link to the landing page. yeah you can put it i'll give it to you you can link to the landing page and you can and tell someone on my linkedin that's free download that okay fantastic more this was awesome really appreciate it um i'm inspired for my selling um definitely a bunch of tips i want to pass on to my clients as well to help them um and really appreciate your uh, time and knowledge today yeah thanks man if you're enjoying the show please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening thanks again for tuning in and keep on growing your SaaS.